Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel and uh, I hope you've had a good week. Remember our motto is explore what you love, transform how you think and become an exceptional being. So we've had him on before. It's Rich Dolan and uh, he's an accredited psychotherapist and counsellor from Bournemouth in the UK. So I'd like to welcome you on again, Rich. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me, Daniel. It's great to be back. I'm excited to be here. It's good. Uh, We've been trying to tee up an extra chat for a while, but, uh, you know, things get in the way, don't they? And uh, life keeps moving on. Life does indeed keep moving on. Um, You know, every day seems to be full of more and more to do, but uh, we've managed to, to, um, to lock some time down to have a chat, which I'm really pleased about. Yep, it's good. So what we're going to discuss today is uh, males and suicide. So, you know, it might not be to everybody's taste what we'll talk about today because it is a pretty important topic, but it's something that some people don't want to talk about, which is a shame because the more we normalise talking about it, the better it's going to become for everybody involved. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. I'll dive straight into this uh, this lovely subject that I think, however you look at it, it's not it's not something that um, you know is is an easy topic to discuss. Yeah, um, we've obviously had a, a few conversations around it, and you know, I think from a statistical point of view, there are perhaps some differences globally, but the pattern seems to be the same in that certainly amongst males of a certain age, suicide is definitely on the increase, has been on the increase. And, you know, it is reaching pandemic proportions of its own, really, in terms of uh, how much of a social crisis it is. I think, you know, we need to understand a little bit more about what is it that has uh, triggered this sharp increase over the last 10 to 20 years. And uh, do we understand enough about it in in order to be able to, you know, try and, uh, and mitigate it? And I think what you brought up was important that, you know, in different countries, there are differing statistics because, you know, I looked at some statistics from America and, and Australia and you looked at some from the UK and it seems to be different in both countries, well, all countries. And I don't know if that's got anything to do with environmental factors or social, you know, where your social standing is. Um, mm. It seems to be something that isn't as reported for males as it is for females. So I wonder if that's more because females often don't complete suicide, so then they're taken to hospital and they're added on to statistics that way, whereas more men do tend to complete the suicide. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think some of the stats and, and the reports that I've read indicate that men tend to choose a more um extreme method yeah uh, and therefore perhaps the success rate is is higher um and it's interesting you're talking about that environmental factors because i think access to treatment as well is a is a significant one so you know where you perhaps are living in a place or a, or a country or an environment where you don't have the um uh, the access to treatment or you are perhaps isolated from uh, any kind of support, then, you know, it might, I'd be interested in looking at some of the geographical kind of data on. Um, well, on I think your rates. point about isolation is a, is a good one because in Australia, it seems to be for a lot more younger men, it's people in country towns or away from the main cities. And that could be loneliness. It could be desperation to get away. Uh, look, you know, I mean, the, the problem with talking about something like this is there are so many variables. Um, yeah. And I guess really, unless you went through and asked 
everybody in those towns how they felt. You could never really get a good enough reason as to why it happened. I mean, I I have always been under the uh, assumption that young men who do suicide, some of them are because they're gay and they're either not comfortable with that or they don't have anyone to talk to about it or they're not sure what to do with their sexuality. Um, However, in the statistics I read earlier, it was that it was only a small percentage of young men that are completing suicide. Yeah, it's. I think, as you said, it's such a subjective thing. What leads somebody to... Uh, arrive at the point where they feel that taking their own life is the only way out. Um, it's, you know, immeasurably tragic to to think of what somebody must go through to reach that point. But the reasons for that are, I imagine, you know, very unique to that individual. But it's it's the trend that we seem to be seeing, you know, uh, certainly in the UK and um, I know in other countries as well, in that this is becoming more of a, whether it's that more of them are being recorded or whether it's more of them are happening, it's difficult to say because you talked earlier about um, something you'd read to do with the shame and the stigma around it. So that perhaps, yeah. you know, are all of the, the deaths being recorded as suicide? You know, perhaps is it now that they're being recorded as, as that? Whereas perhaps in the past they weren't, you know, are we seeing a slightly clearer picture of something that's been there for a long time? You know, has the recent... Um, spike perhaps been hidden because of their cultural taboos and stigma around yeah. suicide? I, I think that is, you know, the, the reports that I read a few years back were saying that a lot of uh, suicides go unreported because family members don't want to live with the stigma of what's happened. Um, and also they don't want to feel as though they couldn't help their son or daughter uh, through what was a difficult time. Um and, you know, there's also the fact of the family that's left behind, how they deal with it. Like, yeah. you know, I guess that is uh, something that weighs really heavy on your mind if you're a family member and you feel like, well, why couldn't I help? Why didn't they talk to me? Um, and, and where do those people go for assistance after it happens? Absolutely. It, it isn't just the tragedy of the loss of the individual. It's the, as you say, it's the whole they leave behind. And I think uh, from a cultural perspective as well, there's going to be an awful lot of shame and judgment perhaps on that family, depending on, you know, um, you know how uh, how suicide is, is viewed within their culture, within their religion, perhaps, yeah. or within their social setting. Uh, a huge amount of, of shame and grief and anger, perhaps, at, at not having been able to do something. And, and recently in the UK, there was a documentary, which I'm sure many of your listeners um, will, will be aware of because it caused quite a... Um, quite a stir but it was uh, the son of um it was gary kemp the guy from spandau ballet so roman kemp is his name he's kind of like a uh, a tv personality over here and he oh yeah roman yeah roman yeah so he did a documentary about his best friend's suicide right and uh you know and there was that emphasis on um it's always the last person you expect or it's you know the the, the quite often there's no signs you know it isn't somebody who's necessarily presenting as depressed or um you know suffering from severe mental health issues they may be the one that always seems happy go lucky yeah. and upbeat which is why it's perhaps such a shock but it is about um the awareness i think of of that hole that's left behind and how people then process how did i not see it yeah. could, you know, could, could i have done something and those questions i think are leading to um, more people saying well is this a yeah, is this a problem that's hiding in plain sight? Do we need to 
to do more to be aware of what's happening because they're not necessarily um, guys that have come into the system and then you know present as high suicide risks. They they're doing it out there um, without an awareness of, of where they're at until it's too late. Yeah, and I guess, look, I mean, most people, well, not most people, some people would probably consider someone that was at risk of suicide would be uh, someone who's lonely, doesn't fit in. Um, I guess that would be the stereotypical view that people would think was someone who would suicide, that's someone who was a bit of an outcast, where in actual Mm. fact it's across the board, it's everybody, it's rich people's families, poor people's families, Um, it affects everybody and Maybe we need to be more in tune to, I think, uh, you know, we have Are You OK Day over here. I think you might have something similar in the UK. Yeah. Maybe we need to be checking in on our friends more often, more regularly to check that they're not spiralling out of control or that they're just feeling really down on life, especially with COVID last year. I think that highlighted a lot about people and even people in relationships were finding it really taxing to be with the same person 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yes. Yeah. And I, I heard one story of a man who actually he did complete suicide because he felt that his family would have money after he was gone. And then it was only after he was gone that the family couldn't actually claim because he'd suicided. So right, his so life insurance policy uh, or something. That invalidated his yeah. life insurance, yeah. So he thought he was doing something to assist his family, which is, you know, we don't want people to do that anyway. But in the end, it turned out to be something that wasn't assisting anyone. Yeah, it's a really it's a really strange one because you make a good point there. that The idea of yeah, when someone says or when we, we think of someone who's suicidal, we perhaps tend to think of that person who's quite literally on the edge, yeah. you know, physically on the edge of a bridge or a building or in that kind of manic hysteria or, you know, at literally at the, at the point where they are going to do that thing. But it's very often not that case at all. You know, it is the people who on the surface that they, they appear fine, they're, they're happy, they're smiling. You know, yeah. it's um, certainly in the work that I've done, the theme I think that tends to come up more often than not when, when suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation is spoken about is that it's to do with escape it's it's not that people necessarily want to die. Yeah. What they want is to not wake up. Like if I wasn't, if I didn't wake up tomorrow, I wouldn't have to deal with this or I just want all this to go away. And that kind of leads to that. Oh, it would just be easier if I wasn't here type thinking. Yeah. Rather than, you know, perhaps explicit yeah. thoughts of, I don't want to actually be alive anymore. It's just that, you know, I, I wish I could just disappear and then I wouldn't have to feel like this. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I wonder if that's a point at which, you know, where that intervention of help, where that intervention of somebody that like you mentioned, are you okay, Day? And, you know, over here, we're kind of, I think at the moment, it, one of the many campaigns that come out is to do with ask twice. So it's like, are you okay? No, are you are you really okay? Oh, you okay. Know, so yeah, yeah. Kind of, rather than that sort of paying lip service type thing, it's yeah. actually kind of, you know, pu- pushing it so that someone then goes, actually, no, I'm not okay. Yeah. But yeah, the suicidal thing seems to be, about wanting to escape for a lot of people from their problems from whatever issues they've got, which suggests that there is a barrier to them saying, actually, I'm going to then, I'm going to reach out for help. I'm going to ask for help. Um, So are we still, certainly with men, are we still looking at that traditional barrier of overcoming that stereotype of being the strong, silent, stoic type 
Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and reaching out and asking. But I, I don't know because I'm getting a lot of men coming to me. So there's something about men asking or accepting help from the system and then asking for or accepting help sort of privately or independently because I'm seeing it happening. But yeah. the UK stats are telling us that you know, 75% of uh, suicides are male. Um, and, you know, we're seeing an incredibly low number of men um, take uh, or, or engage with services, mental health services, you know, statistically. So something's, <laughs> there's a massive disconnect there somewhere along the line. Well, I think that's part of the problem with statistics, though, isn't it? I mean, when you do a statistics on such a small number of people, you actually never get the right amount of what's happening. Say, so, I mean, this... Yeah. Um, the the results I'm reading uh, were based on 2,300 people. Um, so I guess d- you really need to work out how many people you're, you're actually doing it on because they, they take a proportion and then they say, okay, so this amount is doing this, this amount is doing that. And in actual fact, I mean, 2,000 people, if it was in the UK, is a very small amount on the population, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's- I mean, you can get really hung up on stats. And I think, as we said before, they're only as good as the source they come from. And, you know, you can find stats to kind of support any perspective, really. But I think there is enough consistency amongst um, amongst numbers um, in a broad sense to say that whether it's existed before and we're just recording it more now or whether it, it, there is an increase, the reality is that there is a problem. Yes, you know? definitely. So, you know it's understanding perhaps why that problem is so prevalent. And you mentioned relationships earlier, and that's another reason that I tend to come across uh, that, that seems to be behind men feeling like this and gravitating towards that is it's not those traditional male issues. It is, um, yeah, issues within a relationship and perhaps their inability to be able to communicate or to, um, you know, connect with the, with the, their feelings or uh, communicate on an emotional level with their partners because of that kind of, traditional conditioning of not talking about your feelings is creating such tension and conflict in these relationships, which, as you've said, over the last year have been put under tremendous pressure by the pandemic. Mm. People have all of a sudden been forced to spend more time together than they probably ever have done in their relationships, which, you know, is not easy. And we're not meant to be around each other all the time. You know, we need a little bit of our own space, our own time. And all of a sudden having everything that we relied on to be, independent and unique taken away from us and that time filled instead with you know being put together with people who are under pressure themselves in environments that were you know quite oppressive perhaps you know small flats small houses not being able to go outside not being able to do this that or the next thing all of a sudden those uh those issues that exist you know, on an emotional level, are front and centre. There's no escape from it, is there? And, and for a lot of people as well, you also added into that homeschooling. Yes. And you, yeah. and having children around all the time. So I guess if generally, you know, you'd have a conversation with your partner either over the phone at lunchtime or, you know, when the kids are at school, you're sort of stuck in the position where if there's frustrations, you have to speak about it and the kids are going to be around somewhere. So... Mm. You know, you've got that added frustration of, well, the kids are here, we can't talk about this, which then can bottle it up and make it even worse. Um, but, yeah, I mean, statistics for last year here were that divorces went up quite a, quite a way or separations mm-hmm. because people just couldn't cope with being with that same person, that person that they met five years ago that they said, I'll love you forever. They didn't, get, they, they didn't bank on having to be 24-7 with them for six or eight weeks. 
No, and you're all of a sudden, I think, in those situations, faced with perhaps aspects of your own personality that you're able to avoid or to, um, you know, to kind of uh, only have to deal with in small doses when, you know, you, you've got the freedom that, I hesitate to use the word normal, but a normal life, perhaps as we knew it 12 to 18 months ago. Um, but yeah, when you have all that stripped away, you know, everything is kind of laid bare. And I think men's mental health has taken, uh, it's had an awful lot more coverage in recent years. Okay, so look, yeah, I think in this time, you know, with COVID and stuff like that, I think men are finding it really hard uh, to find who they actually are and what the meaning is of their life. And it could be due to COVID that they've lost their job or they might have lost their job before COVID. Um, and, I mean, it's always been instilled of us into us, and I guess because we're in our 40s and 50s, uh, that men are the breadwinner. And for yeah. some people that's still looked on as, yes, I'll look after the kids, you go to work, but other people want it more equal, which, you know, either way is whatever the people want. Um, but somewhere along the line, I think men have stopped feeling like they need to feel. Yeah, I'd agree with you. And I think the old kind of thing about identity and stereotypes is very real. Traditionally, as you say, men were the, the breadwinners. They, uh, they used to process their stuff through manual labour. They'd work in the fields and work in the factories. You know, the, the gender roles, which are, you know, rightfully so being challenged and being kind of reversed in many ways now, they yeah. were traditionally set so that the man went out to work, provided... The woman tended the home, raised the family, you know, prepared the meals, that kind of stuff. And uh, if you look at the history of kind of counselling, that really kind of evolved from a female perspective and a female need and was predominantly for women. And men didn't ever talk about their feelings. You know, that behaviour was never modelled generationally. You know, they went off to war and they died. And if they lived, they came back and they never talked about it, apart from perhaps, you know, these snatches of darkness that children or grandchildren might have heard the war stories. Yeah, yeah. And what we have now is, as you say, um, quite rightfully, equality is putting a lot, of, a lot of women into positions of power and influence that would have been traditionally held by men, which means that the men that it's displacing and the change that that's having globally on, um, you know, on those traditionally kind of patriarchal and stereotypical male roles is really affecting how men see themselves now because that that kind of ascendancy to being you know the powerful man is no longer guaranteed so it's like well if that's not who they are yeah, then, yeah. then who are they and therefore what is a man now and it's leaving them kind of a little bit lost i think you know and that's not it's not necessarily saying that they're having something taken away from them but i think there's there's very little about uh, about how the, the role of a male from a, a family perspective or a partner perspective is now being um, supported to evolve. I think men are just kind of like expected to know what to do. And there's yeah. a lot of them don't, you know, well, no. we, how do we talk? We don't know how to talk. Who do we talk to? We've never talked to people before. If I'm not doing this job, then what I feel useless and redundant, you know, I can't have babies. Can't, I can't do this. There's a lot of things I can't do. So what do I do? Yeah. You know, a lot of confusion out there. It goes back to your family upbringing as well, whether you're, yeah. how you're brought up, um, that you're brought up to respect women and other people. I mean, but there, there must be a lot of displaced young youth, you know, not necessarily that are uh, out of home, but that can't get work. Um, you know, I mean, I couldn't imagine being 16, 17, 18, and I've left school and I can't get any type of job, you know, and then you're living on, 
on benefits, which, you know, I, I don't well, know how people home. can survive on that. Yeah, and, and a lot of people can't afford to live on their own, so they are living with parents, you know. So, you know, that kind of, um, that break into adulthood, you know, that leaving home, uh, it's not as clear as it used to be. Certainly I remember, you know, I didn't go to university um, to, to begin with, and, and, you know, 18 was very much the age that people tended to leave. Either they kind of, you know, went out and got a job or they went to university, but the the staying at home into their late 20s, 30s, the, you know, the housing market, all of these things have changed over the last 20 years that have kept people um, almost uh, in the nest still. Yeah. You know? So there's, there's almost like this arrested development in terms of going out and being independent and the world doesn't afford you the same opportunities that perhaps did when you or I were, you know, on the cusp of adulthood. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, independent routes to what, from a counselling perspective, you would you know, see as a the, the sort of route to self-actualization that have, that have been shut off for people, you know, yep. because you, you've got grown adults still living in their parents' house, perhaps in the in the bedroom that they, they were a 10-year-old in. So the dynamics of that in terms of allowing somebody to... And their coping skills aren't, aren't building, coping. are they? Because if you've still got oh. mum or dad helping you with cleaning, washing, providing your meals, you know, they're yeah. the things that really turn you into an adult when you have to get out and you know I have to work because I need to pay the rent, I need to pay the electric, I need to pay the gas. And for young males, I would imagine, you know, if you were to get in the situation where you got someone pregnant and they either wanted to stay with you, you've got the stress of making sure that you can provide for your partner and the child. And then there's those who don't want to be in the relationship you know, like the the female might decide, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. Then you've also got that pressure of, I need to provide for a child that maybe I do or don't see. Um, you know, so for young males, there there is a lot of issues growing up. Yeah, and I think you've hit upon something really relevant there as well in terms of um, when a family is uh, is kind of broken up or torn apart, falls apart, whatever. Um, the impact of that, so, so I don't know what it's like in in, uh, in Australia, but certainly in the UK, the law tends to side with the mother. Or right. uh, I, I, that's a generalisation, I suppose. But I think the general kind of perception is that, and I don't know whether I'm drawing on my own experiences in my parents' divorce here, but I'd say more often than not, children tend to end up with their mum and the custody goes with their mum. And whether it's yeah. a joint custody or shared custody, they tend to go with the mum. And I think by and large, from a legal perspective, the system does not support dads in that, in that dynamic. So yeah. for whatever reason that family, um, uh, you know, kind of parted or that relationship ended, you've got, I think, a lot of dads who have been separated from their children or... Yeah. Uh, are or having their access to their children restricted or limited. On the other side, you've got you've got dads who perhaps deal with the guilt of abandoning their children. Yeah, yeah, you know, abandoning their families. And I think a lot of um, male mental health problems, certainly men that come to therapy with perhaps alcohol or substance abuse issues, um, within them it, there is an awful lot of guilt over something that happened twenty years ago when they. 
they left their, their kids. You know, yeah. they did what their dad had done to them and, and walked out or whatever. And it may be that they, they had no other choice at the time, but that is, again, that role of a man as being a father to their children is something inherently kind of, you know, genetic. And if that is uh, uh, arrested in some way, then that really plays into that kind of dynamic of, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not even being a father to my children, therefore what sort of, you know, what sort of person am I? And there's an awful yeah. lot of guilt and questioning of, of self-worth that comes with that, I think. So looking at divorce rates and looking at what's happening with, within relationships, I think is a, a key indicator as to what's perhaps feeding into this male suicide thing. Because again, that's a disruption of that traditional patriarchal role of the father, yeah. you know, the head of the household. Yeah, I certainly remember my dad being affected by that when my parents split up and uh, I believe even to this day he carries an awful lot of guilt over having you know as he sees it abandoned his children at that time. We do need to change and we are changing whether we're changing for the better or not who really knows and uh, with suicide um, are the statistics higher nowadays because we weren't recording everything as you said earlier on 20-30 years ago um has it become more acceptable nowadays to report it, whereas back then maybe it wasn't? I, I guess really with suicide, we, we can talk for hours and hours and there's never really a, a concise way of summing it up and working out how we can prevent this. It's just such a it's a traumatic experience for the person suiciding, the, the family left behind, I guess the emergency workers turning up and finding that person. Um I guess what we would say is for anyone who was contemplating this is that reach out to someone. It doesn't have to be your parent. It doesn't have to be a friend. It can be a colleague at work. Uh, it can be your doctor. You know, there are lots of places you can go to and say, look, this is how I'm feeling. How, how can I get away from this feeling? How, what resources are there available for me to be able to access that can help me with this because you know just to echo your comments there daniel anybody listening to this that's contemplating uh you know any of the, the the kind of things we're talking about please do ask for help ask for help um maybe you know push yourself out of your comfort zone to ask for help because uh in many situations you know we sit and we wait for it we hope that someone's going to take notice or, or whatever and that and that doesn't come but that doesn't mean that help isn't there and that help won't be given if asked for. And, you know, the idea to me that someone could genuinely feel so unimportant about themselves that they would think that like that, that life or other people's life would be better if they weren't in it is something so tremendously sad that I would urge anybody that, that, that thinks that to, to just kind of remember that you, to, to someone at least you are important, you know, you do matter and just, reach out and ask for that because there are steps, there are people, but at the same time, you know, even with the things that we've got, we've got the Samaritans, we've got calm that, you know, campaign against living miserably. There's text lines that you can get in touch with, but as you say, it's all done on a kind of who's at the most risk basis, you know, and and there aren't enough resources there, but whether the statistics are being more uh, reported down, they were, we know that there's a problem. We know there's an issue. We know that people aren't um, asking for help when, when they need it. Um, there are, I think, more factors we're becoming aware of, certainly with male suicide, that relate to why it's happening. Yep. But uh, somewhere there has to be some kind of change where people feel 
more comfortable to to ask for help. I think that's it. Can you help me? Please help me. Yeah. You know. And I really liked what you said earlier when I said about the Are You OK Day and you said your one was something that you ask twice because generally if you say to someone, Are You OK, straight off the tip of your tongue, you're going to go, Oh, yeah, I'm OK. You know, because that's what we always say. We say, yeah, I'm okay, or I feel a bit shit, but, you know, I'll get past it. Um, But to ask a second time, it would really make the person go, well, actually, no, I'm not. Yeah. And I think with men, that's a really difficult thing because so I've just got it up here. So it is called Ask Twice, again, but ending that stigma, ending the discrimination. Um, You know, we say, you're right, mate. Yeah, yeah, fine. And that's it. Yeah. But even asking a second time, to um to you know from a guy's perspective that's the sort of thing that then brings in those kind of defensive toxic masculinity things where if if you feel as a guy that someone's probing a little bit you know um and there's a sense of vulnerability that can then trigger that kind of toxic masculinity response where you're like yeah all right what's your problem why you know i'm not going to say some of the derogatory things that you might say in response but then very quickly it becomes that kind of you know those, those shields those barriers come up so so how do we get those shields down then? Well, this is this is this is a good question. I think that a lot of it to do a lot of it is to do with society. We want men men to be vulnerable, but then as soon as they are, there's almost a kind of comparison against these traditional male stereotypes. It's like, well, people are being celebrated for being vulnerable, but then it also we're also still clinging on to this kind of like big, tall, strong these, these masculine kind of things. And I think a lot of it is to do with sex. And marketing, because if you look yeah. at what's out there, we're still having these kind of stereotypical physical, um, you know, versions of men and women that are portrayed through reality TV and through um, uh, a, a lot of. So the Marvel franchise, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is a great one, you know, because you've got normal guys there yeah. that are being portrayed as walking around with like three percent body fat, super ripped all the time. Yeah, but they're not. But they're not a superhero. They're a normal guy. Yeah. So that's the that's the kind of perception that we're all being uh, sold is well this is what people look like but people don't look like that. Yeah. So we want people to be vulnerable and challenge stereotypes but at the same time we're still being sold to on the basis that these are the things that that we all secretly want to look. And Instagram is a great place to to start with how male and female like I don't I don't follow any of this but every time I go on my explore page on Instagram it's just full of fitness models. Oh definitely. So I, I'm like, I, I was saying to someone the other day, I was saying, look, you know, I've got quite a few followers, but if you look at this page, they've got hundreds of thousands of followers, but it's all just either women in bikinis or men in like speedos or board shorts saying, I feel great about the day. Well, I would feel great if I looked like that, but I still feel great that I look like this, you know, but (laughs) that seems to be what gets more people to like your page. If you've got half naked men or women, they're going to follow you. Which is a shame yeah. because it's a reflection it, it, on society that we pride that more than we do on people's mental health and yeah, how I they think are. That's the problem. We we talk about you know acceptance and mental health and you know uh, challenging these kind of um, toxic aspirations, these unhelpful, unrealistic expectations that we have of ourselves or others. Yet when it comes down to it, um, you know we are living in a world that predominantly exploits our desire uh, or our, our want or our need to look pretty and and equate that with with some form of worth because that is ultimately the currency upon which the world works 
yeah. you know, how good something looks, you know. And until, I, I, I think, until that balance shifts, we're kind of going to be fighting a losing battle. It's until we genuinely don't prize, uh, you know, how thin somebody is or how muscular somebody is or how uh, pretty someone or something is, until we, until we genuinely don't place that as the most important thing as a species, we're forever going to be fighting for second place with mental health. And that's just a, a, a sad reality at the moment. You know, for as many people that um, like something on Instagram to do with mental health, there's 10 that are liking something that's based on aesthetics or, yeah. you know, a, a filtered image or something. So it's a, it's a real difficult one. And all we can really do is keep fighting the good fight. But I don't know that that's enough. Because yeah. the numbers are the numbers are going up. Well, look, Richard, I think we're going to have to leave it there. But I'm going to give out a number for Lifeline Australia. I'd like you to grab one for the Samaritans, or is it calm? While I read it out, so that we can give numbers out to people in both countries. I'm sorry, I don't have one for America. But if you're living in Australia, Lifeline's telephone number is one three double one one four, and that's twenty four hours a day. You can call them if you're feeling stressed or suicidal it's one three double one one four and have you got one for the uk yeah yeah so if you're in the uk i would say start with the samaritans everybody knows the samaritans but they are a very very good resource to uh to start with uh the number you can get them on the uk is one one six one two three um but another number i'd like to give out is uh for calm the campaign against living miserably uh you can get them uh in the uk on 0800 58 5858. Both of those will do a web chat um, or a text chat as well, I believe. Um, but if you are feeling as though you need to talk to somebody whatever time of the day or night and you don't have somebody to talk to, or you perhaps don't want to, um, you know, kind of take that step to kind of be visible, both of those resources are there at the end of the phone 24 7. Please do get in touch with them if you feel that you need to talk to somebody. Yeah, look, it's very good advice. It's good to give numbers out because. Uh... We never know who's listening and uh, it might be that they pass that number on to someone else. So it's it's good to have those numbers handy. Well, look, Rich, thanks again for coming on again. Um, well, thanks for having me. Chatting with you. Um, I'm sure we'll have another topic soon that we need to discuss. So until then, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, take care. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other and thanks for listening.